Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of EnhanceYourEdge.com, Brad Wilson. And today's very special guest is online and live tournament crusher, David Lappin. In David's 13-year career, he has racked up over $4.5 million in on-live and live MTT caches, and more importantly, over $1 million in profit. He's also the co-creator of the GPI award-winning podcast, The Chip Race, with past Chasing Poker Greatness guest, Dara O'Kearney. Currently, David is hard at work helping pub games and home games stay together in the current pandemic crisis by moving online and organizing them through private password-protected games on Unibet. Outside of poker, David's background is arguably even more impressive than his poker resume. He has degrees in history and art history, masters in philosophy and another in screenwriting, and an MLIT, which is similar but not quite a PhD, in philosophy. In our conversation today, you're going to learn what all pros should prioritize above all else when it comes to being affiliated with an online poker platform, how successful poker stables ought to operate, the number one thing David believes can close the gap between recreational players and pros in MTTs, and much more. So without any further ado, it is my absolute pleasure to bring to you the one and only David Lappin. David, good morning, sir. How are we doing? Good morning, Brad. Delighted to be on your show. I have to say first off... Huge fan of your show. I stumbled across it a few months ago, immediately told my Chip Race co-host, Darrow Carney, about it. He immediately became a big fan as well. And we've been listening to... Actually, I can't even say we've listened to all your episodes because you're so prolific. It's actually hard to keep up. But uh, kudos on the great work you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate it. I always want to do more every week. And then I also struggle getting the two <laughs> the two out that I do every week out. But um, I, I do want to add some more like pure strategy content. I think that's that's the next goal because that for me is like much easier than the interview style because it's just it's just talking poker hands, right? Like we're poker players. This is what we've done for <laughs> decades is second nature to us, you know? Yeah, that's definitely your wheelhouse from before. I know, I suppose uh, for myself, I, I could say the same thing, uh, having done a decent amount of coaching and having, um, I suppose, just been in the way poker players are always in these study groups talking through hands and the strategy side of things is easier. And, and I definitely was pretty green to the interviewing process when I had to learn it too. So I, I feel you. Yeah. And I appreciate the kind words, by the way, it always, it, it it's always extremely humbling when I get a message from a guest uh, like Dara, who's like been binging your show on my morning runs or like Matt Savage comments on uh, Instagram that he's caught up on all the episodes and, patiently awaiting the new ones. It's uh, very humbling for me to, you know, for people to spend their time listening to this thing that I'm doing. I think that's that's a big deal. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I think when you do begin the process of content creation of any sort, particularly I can relate to podcasting, you sort of make it for yourself or you make it with your own taste in mind, maybe you hope it finds an audience, but you you don't have a huge sense of that audience or what it might be or what it might become. So there is a huge sort of leap of faith there that what you're making is something that maybe anybody, anyone at all on the planet might want to also listen to. So when you do start getting the the nice positive feedback coming in, it is very heartening. And oddly, I found this too in some of the episodes that I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know how that came out. I have anxiety about it. Like maybe I didn't do that great of a job and then somebody will message me that that was their favorite episode ever. It's weird how just people take different things from different shows and uh, it's awesome. I love doing it. I very much love doing it. So let's do it, actually. <laughs> let's get in, the, get in the process of doing let's it do here. Let's do something that we both regret. <laughs> yes, perfect. Um, let's start out by asking, what's something about you that the Chasing Poker great, great, Chasing, good Lord, Chasing Poker Greatness audience might not know. I, I don't know if they even know who I am. So maybe I need to introduce myself because uh, you've had such illustrious guests on and I'm not sure I uh, qualify. So uh, I do appreciate being brought into such a uh, an extraordinary guest list that you've compiled already in such a short space of time. Um, what do they need to know about me? I, I guess I had... Um, I looked at your Twitter feed, I think it was like two days ago, and I really related to this one. Carlos Welsh, I think you were maybe entertaining the possibility of bringing him on the show in the next little while or something like that. And he said something like uh, chasing poker mediocrity. And I thought, oh God, maybe that's that's probably more accurate to me as well. I'm not <laughs> sure. I've, I suppose that the, the one great achievement I have in poker is that I'm still here 13 years on. I've never booked a losing year and I've sort of stayed ahead of the game while probably never being miles ahead or far enough ahead to print, you know, excruciating sums of money, um, but 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 still managed to always, you know, beat most players up as I went along. How do you manage to stay ahead of the game? Because that's something that I see lots of folks don't do. They manage to fall behind because, you know, poker's always evolving, always growing. The field, the population is getting more complex every year. So how do you manage to stay ahead year after year, 12 years in? It's a quality that nobody would associate with me who knows me, and that's humility. Um, I can just imagine everyone I know now pissing themselves laughing at me <laughs> talking about how humble I am. But but there, it's a certain type of humility where you have to almost be paranoid that everyone is getting better faster than you are. And you have to sort of constantly channel that anxiety or that sort of paranoia feeling to think to yourself, okay, well, I just have to keep improving. I have to keep figuring out counter strategies to what other people are doing. And I suppose I've seen people who've really done very, very well in short spaces of time playing a style that I could never quite wrap my head around and was always skeptical as to whether they were just the hot new thing who, you know, either were running incredibly well or had just sort of happened upon a perfect counter strategy for the population tendencies of the day and uh, never fully embraced any of those people, never became a disciple of any of those styles. Maybe to my detriment, I'm not sure, but but instead always sort of wanted to figure out how to play a sort of consistent 
more balanced game all the way through my career. And, and I think that's probably meant for no huge years, unfortunately, <laughs> but it's also meant for no bad years as I, I, I do probably maintain an edge. What does that humility look like in, as related to growth? Like if you could get granular about, you know, the paranoia, because I'm with you, right? Like I'm with you in the paranoia aspect of things. And I think that's <laughs> a, a good way of putting it is that it, it's interesting, this dynamic, you know, you have to be self-assured as a poker player. You have to, you got to know what you know and execute what you know in the moment, period. But then you also have to question what you know in hindsight. Um, and when you have arrogance and you're inflexible to learning, that's when you get absolutely punished. That's, that's the time when everything's going to go wrong and, and people are going to catch up to you. They're going to pass you. So for you, what does it look like improving using your paranoia? <laughs> well, I, I suppose the best way to answer that would be twofold. One, I come originally from a philosophy background. That's what I studied mostly in college. And I, and I think that sort of teaches you a few skills. It probably teaches you stuff that's very useful in the real world implicitly, but not explicitly useful for getting a job per se. And I think that, you know, the analogy I would make here would be when I would be debating somebody, and I guess I would be considered by many who know me as somebody who would be very forthright and formidable in that environment, I generally fight the cause of my case or what I believe in or what I think. And that is often confused with being not malleable. And that's not true. In essence, what I'm doing by interrogating a point, and if that person is making the point, they might be, feel like they're being interrogated. But the point there is to really test the idea. And if the idea holds up, then you know if I win that debate, then maybe there's something more concrete in the idea I put forward. However, if somebody comes back at me with excellent counterpoints, beats me up in the argument, which is essentially what I'm seeking, then I have to form a new paradigm. I have to form a new idea that I can rely upon. And then, you know, the next time I have that debate, I might be arguing the other side of it. And I, and I do think those things are absolutely consistent, although I do understand why they aren't understood to be consistent, maybe at first glance. Would you prefer to win or lose these debates that you have? I prefer to, hmm, that's a good question. I suppose if it's about sort of concrete kind of moral ideas, I, I guess I don't like losing them, although I have lost them in the past. And 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 usually it's for the better. Then you, you it's for your betterment that you that you discover something about yourself. But I, I suppose you you would like to think you were correct in the first place and had maybe already made that journey. Um, when it comes to poker, I think it's it's much better to lose the argument uh, I, I, because losing the argument in poker, we have a very definite sort of. Um, evolutionary track towards improvement you know there there hasn't been like a year where we were all worse than we were the year before so given that we were always constantly improving with you know the help of say initially book learning video learning study groups and now with the solvers i think we're very much on a track towards bettering ourselves as exponents of the game then definitely losing the argument in that context is always right i think it's much more complicated in a, in a battle of ideas because you do see a more cyclical nature of ideas maybe in terms of discourse when it comes to politics or you know whatever it might happen to be i had this thought um had this thought a few years back as i was thinking about 
growth, um, performance, ideas, philosophies, religion, politics, all of these things, my, my own beliefs as related to those. And I, I came up with this thought that growth equals suffering. And the reason that I, I came up with that was because for me, whenever I would grow, whenever I would learn something that would move me to a different paradigm than my current one, I would always be filled with regret. Like I would be filled with regret that I had had opportunities to believe this in the past and I had passed on them. And it would be regret about my past self, how my past self acted, things of that nature. And and I think in poker too, if you learn something that changes your paradigm, your style of play from a, on a technical level, it's going to cause some pain because you're immediately going to realize all these situations that have come up that fall under that category that you've messed up and how sure you were in those moments that you were making the right decision. You have to question, you know, it's almost like you're constantly questioning your sense of self and who you are as a poker player. And so like, I think this is maybe one of the issues that people fall into one of the traps that they shy away from that pain. They shy away from the regret and the suffering and they latch on, they get mired in their current paradigm and they're unable to grow. And I think like as poker players, you just got to let go. You have to accept that. Yeah. Five years ago you were messing up all the time. Like today, guess what? You're messing up all the time. Every session that I play, I mess up all the time. And I think that that is something that I've become comfortable with this level of like, you know, I'm 30, 40% sure of this decision. I'm going to make it and let the chips fall where they may. Like I trust my instinct. I trust my ability. And if something goes wrong or if a friend says, Brad, that was freaking stupid, then yeah, I'll, I'll jump in uh, Pio. I'll jump, go to propokertools.com, run some Sims, look at hand versus range, and then try to, you know, either prove or disprove what, um, you know, my, my stance. And if it's disproved, then great. You know, I learn, I grow. Like you said, you want to be disproved in those situations because being being wrong equals growth. So embrace being wrong when it comes to your poker theory. Yeah, here, here. Um, yeah, that was a long tangent. <laughs> um, long tangent. Um, but David, how did you get involved in playing cards? Like how did that – what's your story look like? Um, I guess cards of any sort, I have – images of myself as a like six seven year old my grandmother on her balcony in a little flat in the center of Dublin uh, whenever the sun came out she used to get her sleeves rolled up and want to get a little suntan uh, playing sevens as I, I guess it was a kind of a gin rummy uh, so she minded me a lot as a child so I ended up playing with her uh, so I got maybe I got my card sense from my nan Poker was definitely late night poker and watching that TV show in the UK, sort of seminal show really for a lot of UK Irish guests you might have. Can I interrupt for a second? You can, of course. Let's go go back to playing playing cards as a seven year old. How did you feel playing cards with your with your nan? How did I feel? Yeah. Oh, it was great fun because obviously as a child, you're, you're trying to figure out games that you can compete with the adults on and I, my nan was was great fun she was a uh, very competitive but also a good sport and i think probably taught me how to be a good sport playing you know a game of sevens on, on the back balcony they're very fun memories for sure i, I always 
played cards of some description with friends. In fact, we used to play draw poker even as young teenagers. I remember before the late night poker craze sort of got me and my friends all into our five euro sit and goes or whatnot. But uh, yeah, it was much later for me. I only turned professional at the age of maybe 24. And I had known the game of No Limit Texas Hold'em maybe since I was 15 or 16 from the TV. It took a long time for it to kind of grab hold of me. Yeah, the only reason that I ask is I also have fond memories as a kid playing rummy with my grandparents and just playing all kinds of card games. I just loved holding a deck of cards and playing cards. And so when I got introduced to poker, like it just, it made all the sense in the world that, yeah, I get to play a card game for a living. Like this is the dream, right? Like what else? It was the only thing that made sense to me as a 19 year old kid. And as I do this show and I I hear everybody's journey through cards, I'm always wondering like what led people to poker? You know, was it a love for cards at an early age? Lots of people are gamers and competitors that eventually played poker for a living. The competitive nature of it appealed to them. But um, I think I'd, I'd probably have to reject that notion for myself, unfortunately, nice as it was to play cards with my nan and to, you know, always you know, be able to play several different card games as a kid. I didn't want to be a poker player. That wasn't sort of plan A. Plan A was definitely screenwriting. I had sort of segued into that. I had been hired by the National Broadcaster in Ireland to write a show that I'd conceived of. And that was going to be my gig. And uh, unfortunately, the economic collapse in 2007, budgets were slashed across the board, funding for TV shows and whatnot. And I sort of went from somebody who had been really, really fortunate to to get the first thing I ever wrote of substance off the ground as a TV show. And, you know, in my head, it was going to be this great career. I was going to write my own show, probably follow it up with another show I had in mind, maybe get, you know, brought into the writer's room of some great American show, and then maybe make some movies or whatever the career would have been. Instead, I was kind of thrown on the scrap heap just months later, I had written four and a half of the six episodes of this series and they just dropped us. They, they, they had three shows in development. They only continued developing one of them. Mine wasn't, mine wasn't chosen. And, and, and I sort of went from thinking, oh my God, this is my great break to going, oh shit, I'm a complete failure. This isn't working now. And the, I remember the national broadcast actually said to me, almost like a booby prize, well, we have some spaces on our soap opera. You could become part of the writing team on that. And it was just like a slap in the face with a wet fish. I was just like, no, I was going to have my own show. And now you're basically giving me a junior writer position on like what I think is a terrible soap opera. <laughs> it was such a like, yeah, it was devastating. So you know, maybe if I if poker wasn't something I was already profitable in, I guess I'd segued into making a little bit of money from poker already at that time. Maybe humble cap in hand, I'd have gone, give me the give me the writer's job, and perhaps I would have been able to use that as a a leaping off point to to do shows of my own in the future. But I suppose because it was so humiliating, and I was so distraught by the idea of not getting this thing I craved so much, poker was like this sort of fuck you job, I can do this on my own. I don't need a commissioning editor. I don't need anybody else to make this work. I can sit at my laptop. I can grind 45-man sit-and-goes. I can make a living just about. Uh, it was very, like, just about in the early days. And uh, but, but there was freedom to that. And there was, um, there was sort of um, 
self-dependence in that. And that's what I really needed, I guess, at the time, having had the emotional knockback. And, uh, and, and it snowballed from there. You know, I had one very lean year right at the start and then the next year was a bit better. And then the third year sort of exploded for me. I had a couple of very big results and, you know, the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, the freedom and autonomy. This is something that I think appeals to most, most all poker players. The, you know, being your own boss, nobody's telling you what to do. You set your own schedule, um, allegedly, <laughs> which basically meant when I was 21 years old that I would play like five hours a week and <laughs> pay for life, <laughs> go out and drink way too often and uh, not put in the volume that I needed to because I was an you know, irresponsible kid who is in charge of himself with uh, very limited experience being a real adult in in the world but um growing up you you your family was very big into film and the entertainment business right like that was that was a big thing and that's what led you to wanting to become a screenwriter yeah good 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 work from your research team there uh yeah my mum was an actress and uh, a theater director as well uh probably more in the late 70s 80s and early 90s and my dad was a theater producer who became a film producer and actually had a very, very successful film career through the 90s and 2000s. He was probably the preeminent film producer in Ireland making, if, if you do know any Irish movies from around that time, there's a, a fair chance that he was the producer of a few of them. Yeah, that, that was sort of the you know world I lived in. Movie sets were kind of a, I could get jobs on a movie set when I was a teenager uh, that was really good fun. Uh, I did a bit of trainee ADing. I was an extra on a few things. Uh, I chaperoned my little brother who was actually acting in one of the movies, uh, a film with Angelica Houston about oh, it's probably 20 something years ago now. And uh, yeah, that was all kind of fun. And I guess it was always the writing side that interested me, though. I wasn't a producer. It wasn't the sort of um, business, accounting, legal sort of combination of jobs that you need to be a producer uh, it was much more the creative side that interested me. So I, I suppose in a sense, a bit more like my mother who did write, did direct and, and was an actress as well. So you can, I can sort of see the, you know, the trajectory of the entertainment side and you being just crushed because you, you didn't make it as a screenwriter and then moving to poker. And then all of that coincides with creating the podcast, The Chip Race with Dara O'Kearney. How did that project come about between you two? Well, it's actually our fifth birthday this week. So exactly five years ago, we were approached by a company in Dublin who made podcasts. They had a cricket podcast, a rugby podcast. I think they were about to do a, a horse racing podcast. And the son of the owner of that company played a bit of poker. I think he played like 10 quid sit and goes with his mates. And he was like, oh, poker would be really cool. You should do one of those. So he then spoke to a partner of his, uh, a guy he worked with who was a, a media person, a photographer as well, uh, who happened to be my best friend and, and pitched that idea. And my friend uh, acted as interlocutor and said, well, actually, I know two of the best poker players in Ireland. I can introduce you tomorrow if you want. And he set up that meeting and we immediately went with it. The idea was that it would be an Irish facing podcast, sort of the local gossip, if you will, uh, Irish guests, a little bit of, you know, international and UK stuff as well, but mostly facing the Irish poker industry. And we made seven shows with a view at the time to getting sponsorship. We sort of 
gave up our own time free of charge to make those seven shows initially. Unfortunately, the um, the the sponsorship didn't pan out and the show was shelved, I suppose, for a little over a year. And then the lovely coincidence or the lovely happening of Unibet approaching both Dara and I uh, to become brand ambassadors for that site, a fantastic site who are very, um, I guess, community focused and, and very focused on, on building uh, sustainable poker economy, uh, something that Dara and I had, I suppose, championed for the years previously in our blogs and things like that. So it was sort of a match made in heaven. In the very early meetings discussing our partnership there, uh, Dara and I pitched the idea of bringing back the chip race as a sort of world-facing podcast, not an Irish one anymore, but one that would look at poker in general. Um, and they liked that idea and off we ran again. And uh, yeah, early days, I think probably a little green around the gills. We probably uh, had to work on our interview style and technique. And uh, I suppose as the show's developed, I've become the editor of the show, but we've had some different editors along the way too. I suppose I, I probably now feel like the show is only exactly as I want it to be now that I have total control over it. But but again, this sort of harkens back to, um, and, it's a, and I, I can see what you did here with your question, that... Uh, not only does it scratch the issue of the itch of having a creative side, but it's also about control. You know, this is um, essentially a, a piece of content, a, a piece of art, if you want to push it to that, that I don't need anyone else for. Like I need Dara, of course, and uh, Dara and I work hand in hand and I think probably shore up each other's uh, weaknesses very nicely. And uh, yeah, w- with the exception of that, I can kind of curate the show, book the guests, record the show with Dara, edit the show, and then even market it the way I want. And Unibet are brilliant in that they're sort of hands-off. They sort of trust Dara and I to to kind of put their best foot forward, I guess. We've only probably taken two notes for them over 70-odd episodes where there was just like little tweaks in certain segments that they preferred us to do something small differently. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty good ratio, I, I guess. Um, and, yeah, it's been it's been great. And, it's so heartening to have not just the ability to get the guests that we've gotten in the last few years, which is just exceptional, but to be able to make a show that sounds the way we want to have that sort of, um, it was always envisioned as a variety show. So to have that eclectic appeal where we have the five segments and each of them maybe hits a slightly different demographic. And the, the variety show aspect of it makes it much harder in my opinion, than like chasing poker greatness, because you got to put all the pieces of the puzzle together and you have to rely on multiple people on a regular basis to kind of get, get the segments in in time. And there, it just feels like it expands the production process. The, the speaking of the production process and control th- that this was a struggle for me early on. I, I have a producer, I have a, a guy that edits and mixes my podcasts and he would send them to me. And the first thing that I would do with, my early episodes of chasing poker greatness would, I would listen to them and re-edit every single one of them. Like that would be like instantly, like I can't, I can't go to sleep at night if I don't go back and fix all the little things that I think are messed up. And eventually I had to just say, you know, fuck it. Like (laughs) I have to trust this guy because I'm spending way too much time re-editing what he's already re-edited and um, just kind of giving him the autonomy of like, look, this is what I don't like. Um, this is what I don't like about my voice and my side. It's, it's mostly me <laughs> because I think as humans, we focus on ourselves, right? Like if we watch a replay of, you know, just like a home movie, 
who are you looking at in the home movie the whole time? You're looking at yourself to see how stupid you look and like <laughs> thinking of the witty comments that you should have said and that you missed. Um, do you ever feel any, do you get annoyed at yourself? This is a very selfish question. I don't know if the audience is interested, but do you get annoyed at yourself for missing something in a segment in the production process? So, so by that, you mean if like I missed a question with the guests and that now they're gone, so that opportunity is lost. Correct, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely that happens from time to time. You, you have to just live with yourself when it does. But yeah, that has happened over the years because you, you know this better than most. When you're engaged in the interview, you've probably got some notes. You've probably got some kind of prepared questions that you have in mind. You really want to hit those marks. You also want it to be loose enough that you can go on certain tangents and be free enough to adventure off the path too. And, you know, in, in all of that lies the potential for missing something. And yeah, look, look, you know, we had uh, Phil Helmuth on the show for the first time, uh, maybe three years ago or two and a half years ago. And he's a guest that can get away from you. I'm a, a big fan of Phil's. I'm very appreciative of him coming on our show, particularly uh, the first time when we weren't as well known. And, you know, he, he is a um, amazing A-list guest to guest. But as anybody who's ever interviewed him will, will, will tell you, he gets away from you really quick because he's a shill machine. And he wants to make sure that, you know, his Aria cap and his new book and his positivity hashtag and his whatever get out there. And that's fine because that's, you know, he's a salesman and that's part of his shtick. But, you know, you as the interviewer have to sort of handle that or wrangle that. And when you're not, you know, of the status, if you like, of Phil Helmuth, it's very hard to to do that without sort of really impinging upon him. So it becomes this kind of to and fro game of, 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 you know, well, one, can we wrangle him in the interview? And then sort of secondarily, can we wrangle him in the edit so that it doesn't sound too shilly as well? And uh, yeah, I, I think Darren and I probably didn't push back on a few things that we sort of let Phil just run over us on you know ultimate bet stuff maybe or these kind of things that he probably doesn't want to really have to deal with you know follow-up questions we didn't really sort of uh in the moment rise to the occasion and and sort of hit him with the, the perfect nailed on follow-up and you know afterwards you're like oh fuck we suck you know we should have <laughs> we should have done that you know we let him away with that and it would be something that you know you, you bitch to your mates about or oh if I ever get him I'm going to ask him this question and then you lost the moment but you also have to just forgive yourself we, we we've done at this point I don't know like 250 300 segments with different guests and you know once in a while something will slip through the cracks it, it's annoying but then I also kind of think oh we might have them back sometime maybe maybe I'll be able to have them back and hit him with that follow-up Phil Phil's one of a kind in the uh, the self promotion category of <laughs> poker. I would say ninety percent of my poker guests, when they mention anything they're associated with, apologize for promoting the thing <laughs> that they're that they're yeah. associated. It's almost like uh, to the complete polar opposite. As Phil, they're like apologetic about mentioning their book or mentioning their thing, which to me. This is what we're here for, right? We're here for you to talk about the things that you're creating and putting out in the world. And in my opinion, if if they're adding value, then talk your to your heart's content. I, I would, you know, we could definitely make the argument that ninety six percent of the things Phil is promoting are probably not adding tons of value to the world. But 
that's neither here nor there. And uh, he, they are guests on the show. You know, you're a guest for a reason. You, you don't want to really hammer your guests. You want to make them feel welcome, which can lead to, you know, a, a situation where maybe you could push harder, but you don't because you, you want them to have a good experience. You know? Yeah, I, t- I totally agree with you. I think first and foremost, they are your guests, and as such, you have to treat them like you invited them to dinner in your house. And while you can have a, an argument and you can have a debate over the dinner table, it can't get too ugly. And there has to be a line. And in the end of the day, they're in your turf. So you have to be able to control where that line is. And it's kind of on you. So I, I totally agree with you uh, with that regard. I also think you, you touched on something really interesting there because it's something I think about an awful lot as a brand ambassador for Unibet. And I did my little bit of shilling there early on, as you heard. I, I do feel as though there is always that kind of push and pull. And I want to be a genuine ambassador. I do believe in what Unibet are trying to do in the poker space. But at the same time, if I push that message too hard, then it actually loses credibility because I just sound like I'm shilling the people who pay me. Similarly, if you go on solo runs, which I have done and Dara has done with regard our own personal brands and our own disputes and our own beliefs or whatever it might be, and that means engaging with other people in the poker space argumentatively and maybe getting into a fight or getting into some sort of fractious situation, you're risking sort of your sponsor kind of not being hugely enamored with that approach, but at the same time, you want to have your independent voice and that's what that's what they chose you for in the first place. So if you didn't sort of stand up for something or stand for something or write about something you believed in, you wouldn't have been chosen by them in the first place. Yet the moment they put the patch on you, you sort of can't push it as far. So it, it's a really interesting balance. And I think it's a really uh, uh, fair sort of dis- subject to discuss. I actually don't hear too many brand ambassadors engaging with it because i guess it's a bit meta or something but i think it is interesting to kind of think about how far you can legitimately push your brand without losing credibility and also how much you can push your personal brand without incurring their wrath i think for me it's always about authenticity and like i so my podcast has no sponsor at the moment so i can just that's a shocking disgrace somebody out there (laughs) should sponsor this man I can do whatever I want with no uh, no thought about losing sponsorship or anything like that. But it, there's an interesting parallel. Had a conversation with Ari Engel uh, just a few days ago, and he was talking about horses and staking people and how he's been staked three times, and every single time he's been staked, his his backer has dropped him uh, for various reasons. And he was saying that he's the type of person to go to his backer with like the worst hands that he played to kind of basically he always is, especially if he respects them in a level that he thinks they're a comparable player, or better player than him. He wants to, you know, basically give them the truth or what the closest proximity to the truth of the situation that he thinks. And it, it just made me think about, you know, it's the same line where Ari Engel's successful because of the things that he does, because of his outside-the-box thinking, because of his aggression in spots that maybe people don't take, and things that can blow up in your face and make you look like a huge, massive idiot, but also can make you look like a genius too. And when he gets backed and he puts that patch on himself where somebody else is fronting the money, we talked and he, he would pass up spots where he could look like an idiot 
simply because, you know, he doesn't want his backer to think he's an idiot, right? Like he doesn't want to have, have that conversation. And it's very similar to me about wearing the patch of a sponsorship where you're a representative of that person. You feel a little responsible for the results. But at the end of the day, like you said, how he played was what got him to that point. So leave the man alone. Let him do the shit that has made him successful over the years. And at the end of the day, this is going to be the most plus EV move you can make as as a staker. Um, and I know you and Dara had a stable too, right? I don't know if you still currently do. No, we, we don't anymore. But but yeah, I do want to address what you said. Well, firstly, uh, in terms of Ari, like if Ari didn't have some punt in his game, there's no way he'd have won as much money as he's made. So that's a very important aspect to the overall package. And if you're a backer, you have to know what the package is and you have to kind of accept it warts and all. You know, whether you want to even call that a wart or not, I don't know, but you have to accept all aspects of it. So that, that seems quite poor forward thinking from the backer. I wouldn't put myself in that position where I would, you know, back somebody who I didn't understand you know, where they found their equity. And I think that's, yeah, I, I, I get it though. I, I I do understand that obviously you don't want to, you know, go back with a butchered hand where you just, you know, you got this read or whatever and it, it seems kind of unjustifiable in hindsight. Yeah, Darren and I did a lot of backing for about maybe four years. That sounds about right. We probably staked ooh, 15 or 20-ish people. It, it was a complicated organism. It was sort of the merger of two prior stables dara and i started staking together and dara and another chap jason Tompkins, very successful irish player were staking together and we sort of merged the stables not entirely but sort of with different equity splits dara was always the the sort of um center of the venn diagram if you like and uh, dara davy was the other staker someone who dara o'carney had previously staked so we sort of um kicked him up to the uh, top office uh, at a certain point and uh you know he's a fantastic person to work with too and yeah it was mostly a very successful campaign we had I, I guess you know like any backer will tell you there was probably some horses we shouldn't have staked we could probably all take some amount of responsibility for some people we vouched for or thought were right and it didn't quite work out as well uh we, we split the labor of running the stable i think pretty fairly and then ultimately, you know, the maybe 10 guys who did really well sort of proved the worth of the whole thing, if that makes sense. And yeah, we did. We were we were pretty much saying Irish people. And I would say probably an entire generation of really good Irish poker players came through our stable at some point. We always were keen to get the guys out of the stable as well. At some level, we wanted them to leave us in two years time having built up the role they needed to to sort of follow the same bankroll management patterns, the same approaches to how they learned those kind of things. Once they were instilled, we kind of felt like they have to sort of go out on their own. And, and, and for the most part, that's what happened. In fact, it was very heartening. Darren and I played a tournament, a big tournament in Ireland. One of the Unibet Opens came to Dublin just a few weeks ago. And uh, looking through the field, so many of the Irish players who are still standing, the MTT players, came through our stable. So that's probably a good sign. That's really awesome to hear. And when I first started coaching people, it's awesome to hear that you're rooting for something that is against your self-benefit in your monetary self-benefit, right? Like 
because obviously, ideally, you would just stake amazing players for the next 20 years and they would never have their own bankroll and they would always just be printing money <laughs> for you, right? And when it comes to poker students, for me, one of my major goals was to always get to the point where I wasn't of use to them anymore because they had reached that level to where they either need to find out, they either need to find a super high stakes crusher coach to help them move forward, or they just you know, weren't getting the value from me specifically because they had reached or exceeded my skill level. And I think like, that's just, to me, that's about giving to the community and being a great, be, being a poker ambassador that cares about the people. And you mentioned sustainability with Unibet and the poker platform that um, you choose to promote. Tell me about sustainability, your thoughts, what are platforms doing poorly as related to poker sustainability that you'd like to see improved? Well, before I come to that, I want to say as well, another feather in your cap is that if you are a teacher, I'm reminded of the Nietzsche quote, something along the lines of a student repays his teacher very badly unless he eventually stops being a student and becomes a teacher himself. So I think at some level, there's a an ethos wrapped into that or baked into that as well that I think if a, if a teacher really values what they're doing they want to see their student graduate something along those lines we, now you, you've opened up a huge can of worms now in terms of um what poker sites sh- should be doing like I, I would find myself being very skeptical of an awful lot of the models these days uh, it's it's dangerous territory you're putting me in because I, I always feel like when I do have the Unibet patch on I I have to be careful about the the amount or the size of the stones that I throw. But what I would say is I was a huge uh, detractor of what stars have done for the past five or six years. I guess the sort of a Maya era would cover the timeline, that sort of aggressive attack on the pros and what the professionals were doing and their place in the game. I I found, um, honestly, I found it disgusting. I, I, I know for a fact that internally in stars there was sort of this attitude of like, well, winning players take eight percent of the money out of the gate, out of all the deposits, uh, and we only get ninety two. Well, let's try and you know recreate an ecosystem where we get ninety six and they get four. And it was like, well, so much of poker is aspirational. So much of poker is about recreational players either thinking they could become a pro, thinking they could play against the pros and maybe beat them in in, in a one off encounter or whatever it was. And creating this situation of like pitting poker players against one another where a poker player who is weaker and a poker player who is better are are being placed in this predator-prey dynamic by the site who are actually the one profiting mostly. That for me was a disgusting messaging that was coming out of Stars and Hall Riser and these kind of people for quite a while. And uh, that really bothered me. I know it bothered Dara as well. We both wrote extensively on that subject um, for me, I, I feel like the, the position of the professional as an aspirational figure in the game is very important. But I also feel like, you know, a lot of them give back in lots of ways. You describe several of those ways yourself there. So I, I really dislike that. I, I also sort of dislike the the model whereby, I, you know, obviously we did have a kind of broken ecosystem for a while with rake back being at such a high level that it, it, it sort of removal crushed a whole generation of you know, pros who are managing to carve out skinny edges and sit and goes or at cash tables or whatever. And that was kind of a way to kill off several of them. 
but it also you know had to be addressed in some way there had to be some balance there and there had to be some redistribution of you know whether it was promotional stuff to the you know losing players after all they're very important but again it's all about the messaging and it's all about how sites go about these things like i think it's very very negative if a site are going to pit player against player like that's not that shouldn't be your role the site should be trying to show off what a great game poker is how people enjoy it whether they're recreational with a budget willing to lose a little bit to enjoy their sunday afternoon online or go off to the casino on a saturday or whether it's the, the the pro who is trying to just you know make a living at all the various different tiers um i i found it reprehensible what they did for a long time i i, I guess i you, you see it now i've i've seen so many pros be culled and i don't think we have a better ecosystem for it right now and i'm probably gonna so here goes my stars future stars sponsorship and <laughs> possibly we've all set fire to them a long time ago don't worry here's here's me lighting the fuse and about to just blast off into the atmosphere (laughs) but you're absolutely right and pros are a part of the game they're you know poker is aspirational and eight percent you know the 92 eight percent whatever it is ratio of money that that people withdraw that and and the money that stars takes i mean first of all that's an absurd that's an absurd distribution anyway. And secondly, it's so hypocritical of a site like Stars to have just like a pure gambling arena to be like, no, we don't want the pros to win. We don't want pros taking money off the site. But also, let's maximize the amount of money that we can take from the people who deposit by introducing these shitty ass casino games and these yeah. games that have, you know, massive, massive, massive negative EV that allow them to play. It's like basically they just want all they want to maximize the money for themselves without giving back to the to the players and that to me that's just the worst like that just feels like the absolute worst to me and like you said you take out the aspiration aspect of poker you take away the dream what are people grinding for what are they learning what are they studying for to to basically get to the point to where a site says yeah fuck off we don't want you to win like that's stupid but it, it just it's never made sense to me and i think that there are multiple ways to create a sustainable ecosystem and saying, fuck the pros or saying, Hey, how, how do we get a bunch of amateur players together in a club and kick out all the pros? Like that's, that's a dumb way to go about it because number one, that's never going to happen. The pros are going to get in there one way or the other, whether you like it or not, where there's a will, there's a way you put a big uh, fish pond together the pro is gonna, the pro is going to do what they have to do whether it's create a fake identity with a fake passport and social security card whatever it is they're going to find a way to get in those games so to me sustainability is you know number one like you you want to lessen the skill gap okay like make huds available to everyone give information on how to use these huds to the recreational players like create a little training course like if you can if you can teach people how to use a HUD in a video game that doesn't make any sense within 30 minutes to an hour, you can teach somebody how to use this information, right? So number one, this reduces the skill gap. Number two, promote training, help people, like help people get better at poker yourself. You know, I know that this is like a a big task for poker companies and platforms, but when you help people improve, this lessens the skill gap. And obviously, Pros are not going to be crushing as hard as they otherwise would be. But saying like, you know, 
minimizing the pros, killing the dream, all that stuff, I think is just absolutely the worst thing for poker. And I hate that it's come to this growing up in the world of full tilt poker that was play with the pros and the pros were celebrated and that's who you wanted to be. You wanted to be that red name on full tilt. Just taking that all away and switching it just grinds my gears, drives me absolutely insane. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, it's disappointing how successful they have been in, in in sort of crushing the pros' influence. You even see it now with the, the, the number of sponsored pros, you know, that, that roster being cut to bits as well. Um, I'm, I don't know what the point of it is. I don't know what the end game is. Obviously, the day is I and Mark Scheinberg got their check cut for four billion quid was an enormous movement of money out of poker. Now, suddenly there was a four billion loan that had to be paid off over, you know, five, six years. And that had to come out of rate. Um, and, and that was an enormous moment for poker where, you know, essentially everyone had a poker stars account back then. And that was just that money sort of gone, uh, you know, uh, essentially a family business, which had made some people very, very wealthy. They cashed in their chips. And now you were left with this vacuum that had to hoover up uh, rake perhaps. And then obviously, rather than just acknowledge that the messaging was disingenuous. And I suppose that's what I, I, I probably dislike the most. The messaging shouldn't be dishonest. You know, you should be presenting it the way it is. And if you have to reorient your loyalty system to better benefit recreational players, if you want to create content and hire your pros or get your people to either coach people in how to use hoods or uh, coach them how to play their hands better, this is something Darren and I are actually very passionate about. When you look at the free content we give out from the chip race and you look at the book Dara made, like Dara was really passionate about his book, Poker Satellite Strategy, that he co-wrote with Barry Carter. Writing that book was a passion project for him as well because for him it was like if recreational players can get better at satellites, something that they maybe gave up a big edge in before, and actually learn some of the tricks of satellites, which can actually not only close the gap against better players than them, but actually maybe help them overtake them because even very good players misplay the end game of satellites so badly, misunderstand the ICM of it so badly, that if you just become pretty nifty in some sort of tricks that are very satellite centric you can actually do very well in those and then suddenly recreation players get to go to the tour stop they wanted to go to more often suddenly they don't feel like they're such a huge dog in the game and they're just getting obliterated every night that they throw 100 quid onto their favorite site you know now they actually have a, a fighting chance and that's all they want Re- recreational players don't want to be you know, just kicked around or you know th- th- thrown about the playground they they want to have a sense of like i can win and maybe, okay, at the end of the year, they will be a net loser. But they want to have experiences along the way. They want to have wins and results along the way. And that's the whole point. And, uh, and, and sort of, uh, if you can coach them how to play better, if you can help that learning, then, then you're, you're, in a sense, doing what the site would want because you're creating a more level playing field where maybe they can rake a little bit more in the long term of all the deposits. But actually, it's a much more sustainable model because the person's enjoyed it and will probably come back again as opposed to getting eaten to bits and then never coming back. Exactly. It's just, yeah, it's uh, it's about being genuine, I think. It, being genuine from the operator's perspective. And I think that a lot of times there's a disconnect between the executives and the players. And you know the pros especially and the executives, it's almost... 
as if they're adversaries in that relationship. And But the pros understand the ecosystem. They understand what's going on way more than anybody else in the world. Like they, they just get it. And I, I do understand there's definitely some self-serving pros, right? Some, some people that are going to look out for themselves and not care about sustainability of the, the ecosystem, the platform and the game. But, you know, just getting these opinions from the pros, I think would be just so beneficial to every single executive that's running the platform, the people that are dialed in to the pulse of poker. Yo, Coach Brad here, and I have a very simple question. How would you like an opportunity to join Nick Howard's crew at Poker Detox? This is a chance for you to have world-class coaching and hop on the fast track to destroying online cash and MTTs without risking your own money or enduring years of pain trying to figure things out on your own. I recently had the good fortune to go behind the scenes with Nick and his detox crew to experience for myself their training methods, and quite frankly, I was blown away and have never seen anything like it. The Poker Detox system is both powerful enough to supercharge your game and simple enough to implement hand after hand. In the last year, they have verifiably fast-tracked multiple players from 50 no limit all the way up through 1k no limit and on average their players are winning eight big blinds per hundred on non-app sites across all stakes with the majority of volume being played at 200 through 500 no limit however this opportunity is not for wannabes or lazy bums this is for folks who are obsessed and want to do the work so that they can reach their full potential as poker players To qualify, you must be able to provide a break-even or winning graph in cash games or MTTs over the last three to six months and be willing to play full-time. To take the next step, all you have to do is send me that graph via email, brad at enhanceyouredge.com, or send a direct message to at enhanceyouredge on Twitter, and I'll personally guide you through the next step in the process. Once again, that email is brad at enhanceyouredge.com and the Twitter handle is at enhanceyouredge. Thank you for your time. I'd love to hear from you soon. And now, back to the show. When you think about joy in your career playing cards, what's the first memory that comes to mind? Joy, wow. I do, I do remember uh, winning my first 45 man at a point where I guess I was becoming a bit frustrated with poker. I remember in the first maybe year, I probably deposited a couple of thousand euros and you know, lost it slowly playing recreationally. And there was kind of a turning point where I won two of those 45 man sit and goes in the same night, obviously a, a huge outlier. I was probably only four tabling or six tabling at the time. So it wasn't like I was playing heaps and heaps of games where you might have a double bink. And it wasn't like I was particularly good where, you know, you might have a double bink for that reason. But that was like 50 bucks became a thousand bucks or whatever it was on that night. And I know that day I had sort of played in a more measured way. I had sort of like the gamble or the little sort of punty side of me had been tempered almost as an experiment. It was like, well, what if I what if I did what I know is right rather than doing all these kind of impulsive things instead? And it worked. 
Now, of course, there was loads of variance there. It may not have worked that night and maybe I would not be a poker player today. But that was a moment of, I guess, satisfaction or you could call it joy, where I realized in that moment that being disciplined and kind of following the rules or the rules that I had set myself as somebody who had maybe read Harrington and probably read Pearl Jammer's book and, you know, consumed what he could from Bluff magazine or whatever was going at the time. And just sort of put it into practice finally. Just sort of said, well, look, I kind of know how I'm supposed to be playing. I kind of know the opening ranges from each seat that I'm supposed to have. Why don't I just fucking do it and see if it works <laughs> rather than just get this impulse of going, oh, fucking seven, eight suited, let's go. You know, that kind of thing. And that was a huge moment of realization of like, oh, you can just, you can be a rock, which is kind of how I learned how to play when I got good initially, was just like be a nitty rock. And then people will make loads of mistakes and you'll gobble up your equity that way. And there was real sort of satisfaction, I guess, as well, because it's fair to say a few people in my life were very skeptical about my choice to become a more serious poker player. I don't want to say I was a professional at that point, but to put a lot of time into it. And I understand why I would probably have done the same thing in their shoes. So it's not to take away from them. If, If anything, they were being good friends and good family. but. I did believe in myself. I did kind of think I can do this. And it was amazingly satisfying to kind of see the results of that and go, okay, yeah. Because again, harking back to where I was emotionally at the time, I was somebody who was hugely keen to prove myself at something. I thought I was going to become a writer. I didn't. The humiliation and the knockback of that was so profound to the kind of core of who I was, that I felt like I was on a tightrope. I felt like I was on very shaky ground. And to be able to grab onto something that I felt I could be in control of, I guess that word control keeps coming back, was very satisfying and very soothing to my conscience or my, uh, my, my being. Yeah. Going back to that, that kid, if he's, so if he's carbon copied, right now wins his two 40 man 45 man tournaments is telling people like this is what i want to do this this is my path in life what would you tell that kid today what advice would you give him well that's interesting um what would i give him i'd probably not change too much like the most productive and the most obsessed with poker i was was at the start and by that i mean the playing of the game I, i guess as time has gone by like the, the, there was an up, my volume increased and my ability to multi-table, you know, probably got up to about 40 tables and my, you know, obsession for the game that way grew over maybe three years, plateaued for about three years and since then has been decreasing. But that's not, be, that's not because I'm less passionate about the game. It's because what aspects of the game appeal to me have changed. So it was all about just becoming the best poker player I could be initially. I didn't kind of have more grandiose designs and that maybe a little bit what you said earlier, maybe the red pro or something was like a thing in my head, but that was all about being a player. And that was all, all about absorbing everything I could to be the best player. But I think that was right. I think I had to do that. That's like your apprenticeship or something. That's like, you know, you have to do your, your 10,000 hours. You have to do your huge grind to build up your role from next to nothing to, you know, get to the point where you can win a, a live MTT for six figures and, and, you know, have that 
nice experience that gives you a new comfort zone. And then when you have that comfort zone, it's, it's inevitable then that you become comfortable. And maybe your desire to grind every single little tournament you can ebbs a little. And it did. But my interest became about stories in poker. So, you know, again, coming back to either the blog or the, the podcast, what I love about poker is the fact that you walk into a poker room and, and you can't nail down who you're going to meet. It's such an eclectic group of people where we all probably have a shared dark side or degenerate side or, or, or something that's a little bit like subcultural or something like that. I hope so. But, yeah. And, and yeah, and I think I love that little kind of the devil in all of us. I think that's a, that's a, that's a great thing that unites us all. And actually I think makes us on the whole, not a judgmental group of people, which I think is a lovely quality that I could say hands on heart is, is, is a pretty much a, a quality you could, you know, paint the entire poker public with more or less. But what we what we are then is, you know, okay, that's the if that's the the kernel of what unites us, it's then like look at all these different ways we get into it, and look at all these different walks of life that produce people that end up in it. And and for me, it was always about those stories and sort of building a treasure trove of those stories, either through my experience of befriending people or through the podcast of having this sort of archive now, where if I did go back and write a feature film. Oh, yeah, I can be sure I'd be listening back to an old episode to try and recapture the place and time that someone described in a story about Vegas in the 90s or whatever it was. You know, you know, you have so much color now and so much detail in that, that it's, it's a lovely it's a lovely thing to look back on and, and have. But it's also a lovely thing to have been obsessed enough to want to accumulate at some level. And, and I think that's I, I don't know if you have something similar. Obviously, you're incredibly hardworking and as you said like bopping out like two shows a week something we don't get anything close to but you are it's almost like you've got your um was it like your baseball cards and you've got your like the most famous guys and you're you're you're, you're filling in the the, the 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 book or the magazine that you put all the stickers in or something there there's something about that but there's also your curation of that your choices you make along the way of who you do want to interview who you don't who you who you seek out and I think that's really really interesting and, and that's still something that I love about the game and I'm so appreciative of the game I mightn't want to sit at my computer and grind for 60 hours anymore uh, that's probably not in me anymore I prefer to grind a Sunday maybe grind a, a, a Monday and then look for some casino games on the weekend or go traveling and make the podcast in between uh, that for me is a much more balanced life these days and I have a son now and family life that is much more conducive to having that kind of uh, existence but um but I, I, I sorry i'm conscious that i've moved away from your initial question which was what advice would i give and i would probably not i probably wouldn't pass the advice on i'd probably say just do what you're doing and earn your stripes yeah or just you know you're gonna make it right like you you can this is a doable and makeable thing because especially in the beginning when you're obsessed there's always fear. I, I, like, I think it's disingenuous from any poker player to say like there's not fear as to whether or not you can make it in a year, in six months. Because like you said, this anxiety that drives us to regularly improve and stay ahead of the curve is within all professional poker players. It's when you lose that edge, that's when things start going downhill. But you know, it, it's a mirror image of myself in 
obsession in the beginning, just pure obsession. You can't, you know, nobody could, anybody outside of the realm of poker could not stand to be near me or have a conversation with me for 30 minutes because I'm going to get to the realm of poker in the conversation. Like this was (laughs) all that drove me, all that I thought about. I thought about improving, being the best poker player that I could be. And then that that does waver over time. And now it is. It's a collection of stories, right? I'm talking to these amazing people in the poker world and collecting their stories. And, you know, for the first 35 or 40 episodes, I've, um, you know, had a guy that transcribed everything. And the plan was to put it all into a book, sort of a comp- greatest hits compilation, the wisdom from <laughs> all of these amazing people. And f- it's been very therapeutic for me as well, hearing people's journeys that that have mirrored my own and these internal thoughts the dialogue that like what am i giving back to society like an existential kind of crisis that that poker players go through to realize that yeah i'm not alone everybody has these thoughts i'm not am i good enough anymore did i lose it overnight just all of these thoughts that you think are singular and only apply to yourself and you may maybe think at least i thought you know why am i so weak in having this thought you know why can't i just be completely ruthless day in and day out and not really care um, like all every other professional booger player and then come to find out, oh, everybody feels this way. That to me is very, it's pretty cool and, you know, therapeutic, like I said. The opposite question is when you think of pain in your poker career, what's the first memory that comes to mind? Pocket Kings. <laughs> uh they followed me around my entire career. In fact, this weekend, Pocket Kings did me in as well. It's kind of like this game kind of fucks with you and plays tricks with you. Obviously, if you looked at my entire career and you looked at the hands that I made the most money from, it would be aces, then it would be kings, then it would be queens. You know, it's like, you know, that's going to be what the hood says or the, the hold manager says. But, you know, what was that great line about Ivy where he said something like, um, why are you superstitious when you play craps? And he said, well, it's no fun to play unless you are superstitious. In, in the sense that like, the, the, well, of course it's a rational endeavor. Well, of course, you know, any fixation on an outlier or something that's happened in your career is sort of stupid because, you know, yeah, I got the same amount of good, bad and different cards as everyone else. But there is that thing that kind of creeps up in you from time to time. It's like, oh, those fucking kings again. Like when I think back of like maybe the seven or eight best chances I had of like marquee scores, like really, like I've had a couple of, like I've had a 100K score more or less in Barcelona and I've had like lots of 20 and 30K scores live. But like when I think of like having that like EPT run or that World Series thing or whatever it was, I'm thinking of kings all the time because it always seemed to be the hand that, my downfall and and it got to a point at, w- at one at one stage in my career I remember I, I'm not really feeling so much like this anymore I gotta be honest but there was a point about maybe the midpoint of my career where I just felt like the, like they were jinxed you know in my head they were fucking jinxed <laughs> always always a fucking hell my friends were like oh fuck off with the kings again Dave telling us these bad beat stories all you do is mention the kings and uh, and I call them the Django's so so I had this like the fucking every time I looked down at the Django's I was like picturing myself in my hotel room four minutes from now staring at the ceiling going yeah fucking again and then <laughs> inevitably that is where I was four minutes later staring at the ceiling going what the fuck how, does, how has this happened again so I suppose th- twofold one the instant pain of having the hand cracked that's obviously like 
something we all get used to over time. Maybe it, it, it lessens over time, but it hurts in the moment. And then also that sort of feeling of like mental weakness that you allowed yourself to obsess over something like that, that it could hurt you rather than just taking it on the chin. And then it was like a, a second wave of like disappointment in yourself. It's funny that you mentioned pocket Kings because early on I did play some tournaments and one of the first series is that I went to, it was like a $300 buy-in. I made the final table. I had like at 30% of the chips in play nine handed dude on my left had 30% and then another guy had like 20% and then the rest was just all short stacks. And <laughs> I was 21 years old and before I played like the night before I was in God mode, like I was just three betting everybody and just going abs- absolutely crazy and winning every single pot. And there was an, an elderly couple that was sort of in the bleachers for the final table and the guy, he, he like pulls me aside and he's like, Hey, you know, early on, people are going to go crazy in this thing, you know, just, uh, just fold, just fold, you know, play, play, take your time and let, let everything develop and, you know, play a little slow. And I'm like, yeah, like I'm obviously I'm thinking, yeah, no, <laughs> you don't, no, you don't, you don't, these yeah, you, over. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't know me very well, sir. So the second hand of the final table, I look down at Kings and I get it in against uh, the guy third in chips and he has aces and um, lose probably 70% of my stack. And as the pot's getting pushed to the guy, I kind of turn around and look at the old guy in the crowd and he's just like looking at me, like (laughs) shaking his head, you know, like, "Mm, I told you. (laughs) (laughs) Proved him right. Oh, Kings. I I think I finished sixth in that tournament, which was like the lowest I could possibly finish with the amount of chips that I had <laughs> it, given the situation, like that was the fastest I could bust myself, uh, <laughs> but pretty funny. Um, if you could gift all poker players one book to read, what would it be and why? Oh, uh, like, like this is going to make me sound like a complete wanker now because my favorite book is a book by the poet laureate Ted Hughes called Shakespeare and the goddess of complete being. But obviously people are going to just go, oh, fuck off, Dave. You know, you're going to come at us with some sort of like, you know, obscure Shakespeare text. Um, But it is an unbelievable book about how Shakespeare was essentially a hack, but a really good one. Like he, he had no, he's obviously one of the greatest writers of all time, but he had the same sort of story structures and the same sort of character archetypes. And he mapped them on to his different plays and the reason he was able to be such have such amazing output was because he was able to sort of copy his own work or copy from his own stuff and maybe focus in on a different aspect of the story and make a new story out of it. And and for me, the, the, that was an amazing moment when I read that book because Shakespeare is kind of on this pedestal where you think, well, obviously it's just Shakespeare. It's Shakespeare. It's, you know, that's just the pinnacle of everything writing. And it kind of grounds them in something like, no, like this is doable or this is like, or, or, or at least drags Shakespeare down to earth as a human being. And, and I think that's really important because like we all have idols and we all have role models and things. And, you know, this is a poker advice as well. And it sort of harkens back to what we were talking about earlier regarding, you know, your teachers or whatever. The, the really important thing to remember is that, you know, the guy giving you the great advice, being your great coach, who's helping you get better is having downswings too, has maybe got a personal journey that's had lots of, you know, ups and downs and 
and, and, and understanding each other as human beings along that journey is so important to having the confidence that we can improve and, and can continue in such a weird game where we're almost like all at sea getting hit by waves at different times. And if, 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 if that wasn't the case, or if, that, or, or if reading this book could give you some solace that even like the great people, genius as they might be, are human beings who are kind of hacks and that we're all kind of hacks. I kind of, I kind of like that idea. I kind of, I, I'd rather not try and make us all gods. I'd rather drag us all down to, to the <laughs> earth if, that's, if that makes sense. For the, for the U.S. speaking audience, um, the, you know, the, the dialect hack, can you define a hack for me? Uh, like a, like a, a writer who sort of just has a few tricks on how they can do something uh, and, and, and not like a particularly wide portfolio of skill, but just has a couple of little tricks that they can get by on and then sort of recycle it over and over again. Shakespeare is a gimmick, I think is the, maybe this will be, <laughs> Shakespeare, had, Shakespeare had a gimmick. Um, but no, you're absolutely right. Like I did a podcast yesterday on Rec Poker where they interviewed me and they did this thing where they asked me my, my input on a tournament hand without telling me who was involved. They just said they were well-known pros. And, you know, I had to tell them first of all, like I'm a cash game player. I don't play too many tournaments, but I will give, uh, you know, as good feedback as I possibly can. And so we do the hand, like the turn is a jack and like on the flop, like pre-flop, I said, you know, under the gun guy, he's got a range that looks to me like jacks, tens, something like ace, queen, and the board ends up being king, jack, ten with like a bet left. And the guy that three bet in late position has ace, king. And like the turn's a jack and they're like, what do you do now? Like facing check. I'm like, I freaking check back. Like I'm feeling absolutely disgusted about the situation, you know? And I'm like, please don't tell me they shoved. And they're like, yeah, they shoved and got snapped by ace queen. And I'm like, okay, like that makes sense. And then they tell me afterwards, you know, they're like, well, the guy in position was Antonio Sfondiari. And they're like, you know, what was he thinking in this hand? Like what, you know, can you, what do you think happened? And I'm like, well, he fucked up. (laughs) Like, you know, he would probably tell you that he made a mistake in this, in, in a critical tournament situation. And like, there's no shame in that. There's no shame in like, the heroes of poker, the people you aspire to be making mistakes in big spots, because like, this is the nature of the game. Nobody's playing perfectly all the time. Everybody makes mistakes. We're all fallible. Phil Ivy makes mistakes all the time. I'm sure he would be the first to tell you that they're just not always super public on TV (laughs) and uh, (laughs) where everybody can just, you know, pick apart every little thing that you did wrong. But I mean, that's the greatness of the game. And that's kind of the point is, you see somebody do something on a live stream or on a cash in a cash game that's you know one of the best players in the world and everybody's like wow like that's just next level um I, you know it, it looks bad but like maybe i just can't grasp what they're thinking and it's like no like they just made a mistake you know they it, it, you just have to live with making mistakes in poker it's just part of it and so people do need to be dragged back down to earth and not put on this pedestal of perfection, especially in something that's as chaotic as poker. Definitely. Um, If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about poker, what would it be? Oh, I would make it 50-50 women and men for sure. 
there's there's no reason in my mind why poker wouldn't be equal numbers of men and women, given that it's not it's we're not lifting weights, and I can only feel that we're slowly emerging from a a a, a space that women just don't really want to occupy. Uh, we all have to take collective responsibility for why that might be the case. But yeah, I, I you know I played a, a tournament in Brighton there a few months ago and. Uh, including the dealer, there were six women at the table. And I thought, that is the first time I've ever seen this. That's brilliant that finally, you know, I'm in one city. And I looked around and actually it was three women at that table and four women at that table. And I thought, well, well, fair play Brighton, you know, maybe is the one town where, you know, there, there's almost equality on this on this one. But, you know, across the board, of course, when you play live, it's like 3% women, maybe. Maybe it's less. And it shouldn't be. And I much prefer spending my time chatting to people at the table, you know, in mixed company, you know, I, I, you know, as a compiler of stories, I would much rather have more diversity. We, we always on the chip race, try to make the show one quarter women, almost like you can't, you just literally wouldn't have the guests. There wouldn't be the number of guests almost to make it half women um, as you might like. And, and we always kind of want to, to make the show aspirational for what we think the poker world should look like maybe rather than how it does if it was how it does it, there's probably going to be one woman on every nine episodes or 10 episodes or something. And that's not good enough. So we try to make it one quarter women. Um, and, 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 and that is doable because there are plenty of interesting women out there. And I suppose at some level, women in the game are a bit more uh, identifiable or, 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 uh, or easily spotted and maybe get a little bit more attention. Those who do play for that reason. But um well, yeah, no, no question. I, I would much prefer to go off to a poker tournament at the weekend and be, you know, five and five men and women. Yeah, that that to me is a, a greatness bomb and the best answer to that question that anybody has said on the show. I 100% agree with you. Poker's a great game that there's absolutely no reason why more women shouldn't be playing. And obviously the culture, I would say, is a large part of that that goes on in a live poker arena. And I've never had that happen. I've never had six women at a table, um, just at a, at a cash game table. It's never, ever happened. And that is aspirational. And I think, uh, I, any, any female poker players that are listening to this podcast and I have the metrics, they don't look good. (laughs) It's, uh, probably 7% of my audience are women, but message me to come on the show. I, I would love to, you know, hear your story and always, always invited. It's, it's difficult. It's difficult enough just in the poker world, getting in communication with people because poker players by nature are not public figures in that they don't typically have a website. They don't have, they don't want people to have their <laughs> email address and contact them because of the nature of the interactions um, are, you know, Hey, can, you, can I get 50 bucks? Hey, could you coach coach me for free? Could I, uh, you know, it's it's that sort of thing. But like, for sure, I'm 100% with you as as a father of two little girls. I would love it if, you know, they, they could felt comfortable and confident enough to just go play cards with at the casino whenever they wanted. If you could erect a billboard, every poker player had to drive past on their way to the casino. What would that say? So we're we're driving down the highway and it's like billboard on the way to the casino. I'm I'm now picturing I used to play in 
Foxwoods and Mohican Sun in Connecticut. So I'm now picturing that road. Okay, yes, I can kind of do this. Okay, uh, trust yourself. Um, I think that actually applies to all players. I think if you're a recreational player, something I've noticed, and, I, and I'm sure recreational players would, would acknowledge this freely as well, when they do go and play maybe like the game that's at the upper end of their buy-in level, or maybe they've satellite into something a bit big for themselves, they tend to lose faith in their own game because they feel like, well, I'm outmatched here. So rather than just go, well, I'm going to play my game the best way I can, they either go one of two directions. They either like close up and, you know, don't find value bets and don't, you know, uh, play enough hands or they sort of do something reckless, like a big nonsensical check raise that smells fishy and is found out pretty easily. And, and that's kind of a panicky response. Whereas in reality, even if you are a weaker player, sitting at the table I've, I've sat at plenty of tables in EPTs where I've looked around and gone god I'm probably like the second worst guy here I feel like well I have to actually more focus on my own game even more so because you know I have good fundamentals and hopefully those recreation players have decent fundamentals and if you stick to those the cards may decide a lot of your fate and the cards may be generous that day but what's absolutely sure is if you start diverging in a way that makes you inconsistent and makes you not even understand how you play post-flop from how you played pre-flop because it doesn't make sense anymore and it's not part of the one consistent game you're doomed i think similarly that's good advice for a pro trust yourself because if you're in the lab and you're you know grinding your po solver or you're in your study group and you're working hard on your game and you're getting your button versus big blind stuff down or your cutoff versus small blind or whatever it is and you're working really hard with your DTO app or whatever happens to be, I feel like in those spots, there is a really big difference in poker between the people who are almost like purists and really good students of the game and those who can execute. And I think that they are not always the same people. Sometimes they're the same people. Infrequently, though, I think a lot of the time, really good players who kind of know what the right thing to do is kind of deer in the headlights or don't do it in the moment with the distraction of, you know, chips are flying, riffling noises around you, you know, waiters coming down, offering you a drink. And they're not as zoned in as they would want to be. And they're not as recognizing the spot that they've studied and they maybe miss a trick. And I think similarly, if you can trust yourself and you can trust your own game, you can build the confidence to then execute that game. And I, and I do feel like maybe, yeah, I think that, that piece of advice maybe applies to both groups. 100%. Trust but verify. Trust in your own poker instincts and then afterwards verify if, you know, maybe you missed something, like if it doesn't work out. But always trust yourself. I've never known of anyone, I don't even think it's possible for anybody to simply improve dramatically when they're in the arena, when they're in focus mode at a tournament. Their, their skill level, that's not the time that your skill level is going to jump up dramatically. It's the in-between mode of in from tournament to tournament when you're thinking and talking about poker and studying the game that's when the gains come so all you can really do in the moment is just play to the best of your ability trust yourself and then move on to the next moment to kind of improve in the times in between do you have any current big goals in poker well yeah like like i've been knocking on the door of another like decent sized win for a while it's kind of becoming a bit almost like I'm getting the piss taken out of me in a lot of my groups that I'm I'm like Mr. 11th or 13th at the moment. I keep just like dodging the final tables of these bigger events or coming like third or fourth in, in, in the smaller ones. Um, so yeah, like I, I did have a, a win live 
in December was a pretty small one. I do feel like there there is a tendency when you become a content creator, I hate that phrase, but you know, that's it. When you start, you know, putting a lot of your time into making content for people, making strategy videos, making a podcast, whatever it happens to be, there is a little slippage where you're taken slightly less seriously as a player. That's probably fair because I'm not in the lab as much as I used to be. I'm not sort of on the field, you know, staying as sharp as I used to be. So absolutely, I would concede that I'm probably not as good a poker player as I was a few years ago compared to the rest of the players. I've still improved, like we all have to, but I'm probably not as good relative to the field. But I'm still pretty good. And I still feel like, particularly in a few sweet spots that I have, I'm a particularly good satellite player, particularly good understanding of ICM, those things can put me in good stead in a lot of tournament situations. And I feel like there's still a kind of a big win in me somewhere. And I would love to have that because I did have a very big win early in my career and I haven't really emulated it since. So yeah, it would be, I'm sure lots of your guests are probably given much nicer answers where they talk (laughs) about, you know, wanting to buy a house for their mom or wanting to do something, uh, you know, that was like less about themselves as a player, but actually because in a way I've stepped away from being a full-time player these days, that's actually what I would crave the most. Hey, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's validation for yourself and there's just so much variance that goes into the end game of tournaments that Mm -hmm. you can go a huge, a massively long time without binking one and taking it down. And it's not an indictment of even skill necessarily in that it's just massive variance. Like, you know, Ari Engel specifically was talking about looking at his career. There's uh, a bunch of failures, a massive amount of failures, a little bit of, you know, a fraction of successes, and then an even smaller fraction of massive successes, right? They just, right. which make up the bulk of his career winnings. It's just, um, it's just nature, of, nature of the beast, nature of multi-table tournaments. Yeah, Ari has that great line where he says, losing is a very important part of a winning strategy. <laughs> I remember he said that on our show. And uh, yeah, it's perfect. Like, it is perfect. You have to kind of accept and embrace the downsides because tournament poker is kind of nonsense with the ludicrous variance it puts you through. You can probably never, particularly in a live context, you can never know where you really stood. So, you know, you are kind of like that metaphor again at sea, kind of, you know, getting hit by some waves and riding others and, and you know, maybe maybe having your time in the sun from time to time, but maybe never quite knowing your value. And of course, a big win gives you a sense of value or a sense of worth again. And uh, yeah, I guess that's what I would crave. Uh, just want one, one big touch, please. <laughs> <laughs> one of the most brilliant minds that I've ever interacted with in poker said one time to me that... You could take the top 30 tournament players in the world. They could play a 10K event against each other every single week for the next 10 years, and you'd never know who the best player was just because of the sheer amount of variance. Okay, two more questions, and we'll get you out of here. What's a project you're working on that's near and dear to your heart? I'm working on a... An old TV show I wrote about six years ago. I actually took a short career break from poker around 2011 to write a show called Roll with a very talented writer, a guy called Ray Kane. And we 
put together a really good series Bible. We pitched it to sort of Channel 4 via another company. We pitched it to the National Broadcaster in Ireland. Again, it didn't get off the ground. And again, I returned to poker with my tail between my legs. But Ray and I have kind of gotten a bit older. Uh, I probably gained more experience in poker. Uh, so I could write more authoritatively on the subject of the show, which does overlap substantially with poker. It's probably the best thing I ever wrote outside of my and the thesis for philosophy. It's probably the best thing I ever wrote. And we're sort of inching towards bringing it back again, sort of writing it with maybe a, a kind of a, a six season structure in mind and pitching it to one of the online distribute like the netflix amazons that kind of, we have actually have a we have an in with amazon which you know who knows maybe that will just be the next knockback but we have an in with amazon and and they're at least somebody in there is at least a little bit interested in the show and what what it's about so we're trying to put both of us time aside he's a music video director writer of other things very kind of generally creative guy and he's great because he actually sort of colors in in a way that I can't. And, uh, and I suppose that's always something I think about with my partnership with Dara too, is that Dara in his storytelling and in his writing is, is wonderful at getting to an emotional core of something. Um, and I'm envious of that. I, I try and do that, but I don't do that as well as either of these two guys. Um, but maybe something I'm good at is I'm sort of a stylist. I'm sort of a structuralist and I'm able to sort of put a, a story narrative together in a, in a tighter way. Um, so sometimes if you can bring those two qualities together in a writing team, you kind of have the perfect match. And I would love to get a TV show off the ground. Um, it's definitely uh, more than a bucket list. It's probably the career I want to segue to eventually. That's I wish you nothing but the best. And in the in the the blog post that I've read, I, I do think that you do you are able to get to the emotion emotional core maybe better than you might give yourself credit for. Oh, thank but, you. Uh, I, I do wish you nothing but the best in your, your screenwriting and, uh, you know, getting that shit done, right? Like that's, that's the, the real life bink, um, to go with the tournament bink together that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take a, I'll take a, a five seasons with Amazon as a, instead of that, uh, hundred K score I was talking about. <laughs> Final question, man. Um, where can the chasing poker greatness audience find you on the world wide web? Oh, I'll find them. I'm, 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 I'm everywhere. No, no. Uh, <laughs> At DK Lappin on Twitter is probably my social media home. Uh, I'm on Facebook as well. I, I do add people on Facebook all the time. I have an Instagram. I don't really use it. That's probably also DK Lappin. The Chip Race at The Chip Race is also on Twitter. You can hear us on SoundCloud, Apple Music, Stitcher, uh, hopefully soon on Spotify. We're probably going to launch on there pretty soon. And uh, you can find me at a Unibet open uh in the near future or a unibet uh poker online tournament i'm sure i'll be grinding away there too so uh yeah no please and and the one thing that i i, I do find is great is that since meeting darrow carney i'm m- more approachable because i was probably never a pr- i'm probably quite a prickly personality and, and probably less approachable but Dar- dara has kind of softened me in the eyes of at least some people in the poker public and uh, I think I'm more approachable these days. So please do, you know, drop me a DM or say hello or add me on any of those things. I'm, I'm usually forthcoming. And uh, don't forget the blog. Don't forget the blog and 
watching or actually reading, imagining David figuring out the optimal amount of time to sit in a room with a cup with a bunch of people outside waiting. I think uh, <laughs> great read there as well. You, you've definitely thrown out a little bit of bait for my blog there. <laughs> my blog is, uh, I think it's DK Lappin or uh, something along those lines as well. Again, if you if you Google me, it, it will it will appear somewhere. And uh, yeah, you've thrown a few breadcrumbs out there. I'm sure people will be dying to know what I was talking about there. <laughs> <laughs> David, it's been awesome having you on. Um, Let's do it again in the near future. And uh, have a great rest of your day, my man. I would love that, Brad. And again, quality work out there. You know, keep up the great work. Uh, I'm just really looking forward to where this show goes over the next year or so. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.